Okay, please stand once again, and we're going to turn to our New Testament reading now. Ephesians chapter 1, where we'll read verses 3 to 14. Thinking of Ruth 3, I love what this chapter has to say about redemption. I also love what it has to say about the time of waiting between what God has already done and what he's promised to do. I love what it says about the guarantee that he's given us in the present of all that future inheritance. So let's read Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Uh, But first, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please uh, grant us uh, insight, careful attention, um, uh, clarity, um, and uh, watchfulness, um, and faith as we listen to your word read and preached among us tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's turn back to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. And turned over, 
And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Amen. You may be seated. There can come a time in many uh, burgeoning relationships when a, a man and a woman get to a point where there's a looming question, uh, and the question is, what, what really are we to each other? Are we, are we friends or are we you know, friends? And um, sometimes, of course, that question is only in the mind of one of those two people. And, uh, and that can be a little bit awkward, right? So if one of them brings it up and the other one is thinking, well, oh, man, how do I not hurt this person's feelings, how do I kind of let them down, not too harshly. Um, and in fact, it can actually take a lot of courage to bring up that kind of conversation. Now, I don't, I don't know how common this is. Maybe some of you can enlighten me afterwards. My friends used to call it a DTR, define the relationship. Is that, is, do people still do that? Um, but seriously, there, there is a big risk in bringing up that kind of conversation, right? Because there's always the possibility of rejection, of embarrassment, of, of heartbreak, of being um, misunderstood, and of also of, of an attempt to change the relationship actually to losing a really good friend. And that can be really hard. Um, so there are risky conversations to have. Uh, and of course, what I'm describing here is the kind of familiar... Uh, ordinary Western American version of this sort of thing. And obviously, these things work very, very differently in different cultures, and I certainly don't want to impose that Western American experience onto tonight's passage. It's a totally different cultural context. Uh, but I use that illustration for this reason. Here's what I think we can do. You take the all of the um, that sense of awkwardness, maybe, that sense of risk, that sense of uncertainty, that sense of tension from a, a DTR talk or whatever people want to call it. 
and you, you ratchet it up about a billion notches. And maybe you'll have a sense for the very high-strung intensity and daring and potential devastation uh, running through this chapter between Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. I like that phrase, high-strung. It's like you take a guitar string and you, and, you, and you turn the tuning peg, and then you turn it some more, and you turn it some more, and you start turning away because you don't want it to pop in your face, right? It's just high-strung. Uh, enough illustrations, though. I want to get into the story. First, we're going to talk about a questionable plan, verses 1 through 5. Second, a plea and a promise, verses 6 to 13. And then finally, a hope pending, verses 14 to 18. So a questionable plan, a plea and a promise, and a hope pending. Okay, so first is this questionable plan. Uh, It's always a mistake to assume that just because something in the Bible is is done by a sympathetic character, uh, somebody we think of as a good guy, so to speak, that therefore it must be a wise or righteous action, uh, something that God approves of. Um, Now, on the other hand, it can also be a bad idea to to come down really hard on, on a character's action that we deem unwise or wrong in some way, if the historian does not give us a value judgment about it. Um, That can be a mistake as well. Uh, Sometimes we have to weigh these things very carefully, uh, remembering especially that the point of the story may not be for us to say, was this person right or wrong? Uh, The point of the story may have much more to do with what God is doing in the midst of a very complicated and maybe a little bit ambiguous situation, uh, very much like so much of real life tends to be, where exactly the right thing is not, not always clear. I think Ruth chapter 3 is a, a classic example of this, where we could fall into one of those errors or the other in trying to evaluate this plan of Naomi. And I want to be careful as we get into this not to impeach unfairly the character of Naomi who is definitely presented here as a woman of faith, who is really trying to do the right thing for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She really wants to seek rest for Ruth. Um, I do think it's fair, though, to say that the historian would expect us to raise our eyebrows, at least one eyebrow, uh, maybe even to cringe a little bit at this plan that Naomi comes up with at the beginning of the chapter. Think, what, what is Naomi's goal here? Well, in the big picture, again, she's seeking rest for Ruth. And to do that, what she wants to have happen is for Boaz's relationship with her and with Ruth to, to move forward, to change, to change the status quo, to advance it to a new level of permanence and closeness. And... Of course, ideally, but, but surely to Naomi, this would have, would have seemed kind of like a almost unachievable dream. But you can imagine her saying, well, I'm allowed to dream, aren't I? Um, ideally, it would be amazing if Boaz would up and marry Ruth. Wouldn't that be amazing? But then you think about all of the obstacles in the way that would have made that outcome seem pretty unlikely. 
perhaps so unlikely that it's the sort of thing Naomi couldn't even bring herself to say out loud. It would sound so foolish and presumptuous. Uh, There's not just the fact that Ruth is not even an Israelite. She's a Moabitess, which is one strike against her. There's also a pretty big age gap, uh, as it appears as the story goes on. Uh, Plus, there's a huge gap in social standing, where Boaz is this wealthy landowner, and Ruth is this impoverished person living off the the scraps of grain left behind in his field. So, uh, yes, he had now become their their benefactor. He's, He's been providing for them in... Uh, a generous and extraordinary way, but there's a big difference between having a, a benefactor and having a husband. Contemplate a marriage between Boaz and Ruth uh, must have felt almost fantastical. And for these reasons, I I think it's legitimate for us to to kind of to wonder how fully formed Naomi's intentions were when she gives Ruth these instructions here. and I, I think the historian kind of leaves open the question of exactly what Naomi is hoping will be the outcome of this midnight meeting. It's kind of hard to say. I think the ambiguity, even taking the, the most optimistic understanding of, of Naomi's intent here, I think the way the historian tells the story leaves that ambiguity that, that leads us to kind of Question. I think that it is, it is fair for us to think the best of Naomi. I think that it's fair for us to be as generous to her as possible. So let's say that Naomi's conscious goal here is to get Ruth to try to persuade Boaz to marry her. Um, even so, what do you think of this plan to accomplish that, to get to that outcome? Even in a, even in a best-case scenario, of as far as Naomi's intentions. Naomi is placing Ruth here in a, a very vulnerable position, uh, not to mention Boaz. She's, she's setting up a scenario intentionally that is just, it's just electrified. It is, it is taut to the breaking point, like that guitar string, high strung, as this plan could have so easily gone so very wrong in so many different ways. Now, again, being as generous as we can to Naomi, um, it may be that she simply had such a high degree of confidence in the character and the integrity of both Ruth and Boaz that, that she knew. She just knew, based on what she knew of them, that everything would turn out all right, that they would conduct themselves in a chaste and self-controlled way, that they, in fact, do. And if, if so, then her confidence apparently was well-placed. But still... Whether she was right to count on that and to hang so very much weight upon it as to set up this scene, perhaps still questionable. The historian, in the way he tells us, is, is building this tension. He wants us to raise our eyebrows. This is, if it seems very odd and almost alarming that Naomi would suggest this, you're not reading it wrong, you're reading it right. Now, there are a variety of ways that students of this passage have approached and have interpreted Naomi's instructions compared with the way that Ruth actually acts on them. You may have heard from, in some other context, that in Naomi's instructions here, the things that she says to do, that there is a series of um, what we might call double entendres. 
that kind of add to the tension, to the questions about what Naomi is really hoping will, will happen. Um, I, I think that, uh, we think about the historian's intent, I, I think that those double entendres, there's a good case to be made that they are real, um, but I think that their purpose is, is mostly literary to, re, to remind us as the readers of what might have happened here, of the different directions that this scene might have gone, in contrast with, in contrast with what actually did happen. Uh, due to the integrity and the purity of Ruth and Boaz. In other words, if some of Naomi's instructions could be taken figuratively in the Hebrew language in sort of a, sort of su- suggestive ways, I, I think that the very point in verses 6 to 8 is to demonstrate that Ruth followed Naomi's instructions quite literally. Not figuratively, but literally. Plain and simple and not according to any of those unseemly uh, connotations. So what actually happened when Ruth went to the threshing floor? Well, she literally uncovered his feet. She literally lay down there at the foot of his pallet. So literally, in fact, that why, why is it that he woke up? Well, he woke up because his feet were cold. And uh, I'm, I'm not alone in thinking. I, I think that we are supposed to smile a little. It's just a little bit funny when Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night because his feet are cold and he, he rolls over and, what in the world, who are you? A line there at my feet, there's a woman there. Reminds me of this book that we have at home. It's called Bedtime for Francis, where Francis the Badger is supposed to be in, in bed, but she can't fall asleep. And so she goes and she stands beside her parents' bed and, it's, and it says, uh, she was so quiet. She was the quietest thing in the room. She was so quiet that father woke up all of a sudden with his eyes wide open and he said, umph. We've had that experience kind of before. Um, But isn't it the mark of a great writer, great storyteller, when someone can have us just laughing out loud one moment and the very next moment can have us in, in tears, partly because of that laughter followed by the great poignancy of what happens next. It's the very next thing. After that comical moment, Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That is a very meaningful statement there for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, you can see, even in the ESV footnote on this verse, that um, the word for wings here can also mean the corners of a garment, well, that doesn't really help very much. Well, the background is that there, there's evidence that in this culture and time, um, this was connected with a wedding tradition, where as part of the marriage ceremony, the husband would put the corner of a garment around his bride in a symbolic way. Whatever uh, suspicions or uncertainties we might have had about Ruth's character, Ruth's intentions in coming to Boaz in this matter, manner at this time of night, This statement about um, spread your wings or the corner of your garment over your servant, that statement, as much as anything else, begins to dispel any of those suspicions and uncertainties. Because it's making clear what is Ruth's objective here. What is she aiming at? And it's, it's vindicating her 
clarifying that she is not here to compromise Boaz to manipulate him into any kind of illicit relationship. What is she is doing is she is entreating him, she is asking him to give her the kind of lasting security and stability and provision that only he could give by taking her into his home as his wife. And the way that she phrases this is also significant uh, because of something that Boaz said in the previous chapter. I told you to remember it last time, uh, looking ahead to this one. In chapter 2, verse 12, um, there it's, it's the Lord, um, uh, Boaz says, under whose wings you, Ruth, have come to take refuge. Uh, Boaz is commending Ruth for taking refuge under the Lord's wings. Now, what is Ruth implying? She seems to be implying, well, well, Boaz, what is it going to look like for me to come under the Lord's wings of protection? Well, it's going to look like you, Boaz. If that's really what you want for, for me, then have you considered that you actually may be the Lord's instrument for accomplishing that? That you may be the wing that the Lord is planning to spread over me. Maybe it's you, Boaz. If you think about it, for all the reasons I talked about earlier, what a, what a bold thing for Ruth to suggest. Again, it's, it's hard to overestimate the, the tension, the uncertainty, even in this moment. Especially as you think, not just what did Ruth stand to gain if this worked out, but think of all that Ruth stood to lose if it did not. We spoke earlier in, in the most ordinary of, of relationships about the possibility of rejection, of embarrassment, of heartbreak, of being misunderstood, of losing a friend when someone has that courage to ask to take a new step of nearness and commitment in a relationship. And, and you just think about all of the ways that Boaz might have responded here. How he might have construed Ruth's intent that night, how he might have misunderstood what she was trying to do in coming to him. And you could also think if he had been a different sort of man than he actually was, what a ripe opportunity this was for him to have taken advantage of her. As she had made herself, at Naomi's instructions, a lot of the responsibility for this lies at Naomi's feet, but she had indeed made herself quite extremely vulnerable to him. The outcome of that night depending so much on just what sort of man this was that she had come to. What his character was really like there in the dark of night when nobody else was watching. That's the definition of integrity. I always remember my own father teaching me as a boy that integrity is doing the right thing when no one else is watching. And I think that this is something the historian really wants us to admire here. It is the integrity of both Ruth and Boaz. Um, Naomi, again, it's left a little bit ambiguous. doesn't condemn Naomi, but it raises our eyebrows. But whatever was in Naomi's mind, whatever her intent, Ruth, at least, Ruth at least, and in the way she actually carries out this plan, Ruth conducts herself with this amazing combination of both totally honoring Naomi as her mother-in-law and also 
very carefully maintaining the purest integrity and caution under these very unusual circumstances that she's been sent out into. And then Boaz, on his side, in his turn, stands at this moment of decision, and he responds out of this well of character strength that you know had to have been deeply in place long before this moment of reckoning arrived. Think about that. Think about how this character of Boaz developed. Because you have to understand, it is not when the crisis comes that you build this kind of character that Boaz shows this night. This is the kind of moment when a man's character is proven, when it is revealed, not when it is built. It is in the millions of other moments that are not a crisis that this kind of character is built. And thanks be to God that Boaz, apparently in those millions of moments, had grown in the habits of godliness and integrity that prepared him to respond as he, in fact, does in verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. And what a great way to sort of diffuse the the tension in the air here. He's going to treat Ruth for now. He's going to treat her as a daughter which makes sense in the context of this moment because of that difference in age between them, as he's many years her senior, most likely, as well as the difference between their station and life, their uh, station in life. And so he refers to her as my daughter, um, kind of establishing that father-daughter kind of uh, relationship in that moment. But then at the same time, he also commits himself to a course of action that, where he is determined to change that relationship between them in the future. I like how self-deprecating Boaz is here. Some other man might have kind of flattered himself at receiving the attention of a woman like Ruth. But you look at Boaz's humility, and he says, Oh, Ruth, you could have pursued a lot of guys a lot more attractive than an old guy like me. And, And yet you've come to me. Why? You've come to me because you're living by the standard of hesed. That's the word translated kindness here. There it is again, my favorite word. Boaz is saying you're structuring your life according to the covenant plan of God, according to the way that God has revealed in his law, in his word, that he has planned to take care of people with just your kinds of needs. And so now it's time for Boaz, then, to show whether he, too, is going to live by that same standard of chesed, of that covenantal loyalty and love. See, Ruth has risked everything here. Ruth has placed herself completely in Boaz's hands. And then how sweet it is when his answer comes and the tension breaks at last, and the answer is yes. That is Boaz's answer. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And that phrase, a worthy woman, is very, uh, very rich there. Uh, worthy, there is also the Hebrew word for wealth uh, as well as strength. Now, of course, Ruth is not wealthy by any monetary measure. She is physically strong, it seems, judging by the, just the amount of grain that she carries back to Naomi. But what Boaz means here, of course, primarily is her strength of character. Apparent to all, it's a a good name, a reputation for godliness that's more than just a reputation. It's real, it's solid from the inside out. That's what Ruth is like. May all of the women and, and girls of this church aspire 
to be worthy women like Ruth is described here. And may all the men and the boys of this church aspire to be worthy men like Boaz, which is how he's described back in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, <clears throat> not everything has been resolved yet. Uh, Boaz mentions here that there's going to be another man uh, who's an even closer relative who needs to be consulted first as he go through this. Again, according to the orderly system laid out in the law of God. Um, part of Boaz's chesed, part of his that steady covenantal faithfulness that provides that um, ballast for this story to work its way to the happy ending, part of that is shown in the way that he doesn't, he doesn't rush through things here. He doesn't rush to the conclusion. He's going to go through the full legal process. He's not in a hurry. He's going to make sure that everything is out in the open, that everything is above board, and um, this also demonstrates something important here, which is that the eventual marriage of Boaz and Ruth is not going to be based on a momentary infatuation. It's not, they, it's not that they get married because they've fallen in love. That's not why Boaz and Ruth get married. Sometimes the b- book of Ruth is thought of uh, or characterized as a very romantic book. And um, I guess in a sense it is, sort of. But it's not like any romance that... You would any romantic story that I've come across in contemporary culture, or anything close to contemporary culture. Why? It, well, it's because I think here's where, if you want to try to put your finger on, why is it different from the romance stories that you would encounter today? It's because it is not driven by the feelings of the characters for one another. It is driven instead by their commitments, by their covenantal commitments. But here's the thing you have to understand. That is not to say that it's not full of feeling. The book of Ruth is a book full of feeling. But see, that's something that our culture gets terribly wrong today. Separating law and love from one another. Acting as though they're opposed to each other. As though real, authentic love is love that goes against the rules. That bucks against customs and standards and rejects the norms that other generations or outside influences would seek to um, fence it in with or whatever. And see, what's lost when we think of it that way, what's lost is, is the way the, the, that the best and the richest, the most lasting kind of love is the kind that is built upon and guarded and preserved by and deepened because of commitment. Because of law, even. Because of covenant. See, that's what marriage is. It is a covenantal commitment that guards and nurtures and cultivates love. And does that for a lifetime. Defending it against people's natural and sinful tendency to change over time. And and left to ourselves to digress from that love that we had at first. So, here in Ruth, what you see is covenant enriching and deepening love. With apologies to the band Boston, it's more than a feeling. So much more. Over verse 13, you get the conclusion of Boaz's promise. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives... By the way, there's no more serious oath that Boaz could have taken than to say, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. 
I will redeem you. What a promise is that from Boaz? What an assurance, what a peace that must have given to Ruth. And of course, they don't have the wedding right away. There's still a lot of details that need clearing up. But the most fundamental thing is crystal clear now that Boaz will redeem Ruth. And by extension, that means, of course, redemption for Naomi as well. There is this hope now pending for both of them. And the grain that Boaz sends home with Ruth um, represents sort of the first piece of the the really limitless provision and security that Ruth is going to have when everything Boaz possesses becomes hers in their marriage one day soon. I'd like to think just for a minute, as we get near the close here, about um, that interim between Boaz's promise and the final resolution. Um, This hope that's pending, this, this gap, we might say, between promise and fulfillment. It's a situation that bears a a close analogy uh, to where we're living right now in in God's plan. Uh, We read earlier from Ephesians 1 how God has had his plan for our redemption in place from all eternity. He's actually accomplished it. He's done everything necessary for our redemption in the work of Christ. And he's promised to us in the future an eternal inheritance that's yet to come. In heaven. And even though we're not there yet, even though there are all kinds of loose ends yet to be tied up in this life and in God's plan, you know, what does Ephesians 1 say the Lord Jesus has given to us in the meantime? It says he's given to us the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The guarantee. Sometimes translated the down payment, the first experience, a real peace, a real experience in part of that full inheritance that's yet to come. See, our hope is, is pending, but it is certain. Christ has made us precious and very great promises, and we can trust him because, just like Boaz, he will not rest until he has settled the matter. That's what Jesus is doing now. He is settling the matter. And he is going to bring us home to glory, to that great wedding day at the end of history. Boaz was a worthy man, as he's described, giving himself sacrificially in loyalty and love to redeem Ruth, to provide for her, as well as Naomi. All of these things that they could not provide for themselves. It depended on him for completely But uh, as worthy as Boaz was, as much as there is to admire in his character, that love of Boaz pales in comparison to Boaz's greater son, to the love of Jesus, who laid down even his very life for his bride. Jesus, who did whatever it took, and who even now is doing whatever it takes to bring his bride all the way home to him in glory, where we will be safe and secure under his wings forever. And that's good news for the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven,
thank you for giving us this story. So unusual, so unexpected the way this story goes. Thank you that you've put it in the Bible for us to see and admire and take delight in um, the uh, tension and resolution, the character of these, this worthy man and this worthy woman. Thank you even more for the way that it teaches us by analogy about the Lord Jesus, his worthiness, his love, his covenantal faithfulness to us. Lord, as you grow us up more and more in Christ our head, as you prepare us more and more for the great wedding day at the end of time, we pray that you would please make in this congregation, uh, young and old, every one of us, Lord, at every stage in our Christian lives, worthy men and worthy women with that integrity and covenantal commitment to your ways that we've seen displayed before us tonight. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.